Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, church. Uh, that's weak. Hey, maybe to build up some momentum here, how do we feel about having college students back? There it is. All right. All right, now we'll go back to it right in on that energy. Good morning, church. Good morning. All right. Hey, it's always, always good to be with you. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it this morning to John chapter 13. And if you're, you're new here, we've been saying that a lot. Like if you're new here, when you're new here, we know there's a likely a lot of new people here, particularly freshmen. Welcome to town. We're excited for you to be here. But if you're new here, this is just what we do. Uh, we just simply, each week, we open the Bible and just take it a verse at a time. Not super crazy, uh, not super creative, uh, but we think that that's what's best for us as a church, that this would be our primary diet. And so what we've done is we've walked through the Gospel of John. We actually started this journey last fall. And over the course of the fall and the spring, worked from John 1 all the way through John chapter 12, took a brief break over the summer as students were gone, and then last week jumped back in as students started to roll back into town. And last week started in John 13. We'll continue on here and we'll actually finish the Gospel of John the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So what I want you to do is actually just hold your place there in John 13 and kind of flip a few pages forward to John 20. I just don't want you to miss this because we're going to spend 14 weeks on John 13 through John 20. But I want you to know this. Just look at it now. Kind of flip the pages back and forth. See John 13, a few pages, John 20. Everything that happens between those two points takes place between Thursday evening and Sunday evening in Jesus's life and his disciples' lives. 72 hours. It's a third of the Gospel of John. And so we're gonna take 14 weeks to go through a third of the Gospel of John, looking at just 72 critical hours, dark but beautiful hours. And today, our attention turns to Judas. So I'm gonna start first by Referencing a movie, I'm just going to drop a line here out of a, of a classic movie. Uh, maybe it'd be in like your like top five if I was on a deserted island. I'd take this movie with me, especially if you have kids. This is it. I'm going to drop a, a movie line on you. I want to see if you can guess it, okay? Here it is. Remember, kid, heroes get remembered, but legends never die. die. Ah, what's that from? Sandlot, the Sandlot. If you didn't know that, shame on you. Go out, you know what you're doing this afternoon now. Watch the Sandlot. It's a classic. Such a great moment though, when, when Babe Ruth, the ghost of Babe Ruth appears to Benny the Jet Rodriguez and talks to him about pickling, you know, I want you to pickle the beast. It's just amazing. But the whole essence of the line is that there's a list of names People that because of what they do in their life, are, it's so great, their accomplishments are so great that what happens in their lives makes them legends and their names are never forgotten. There's a list of people over here and maybe your mind's starting to think about some names that fall on that list. Legends, those names that never die. But there's also another list of names, not heroes, not legends. In fact, they're quite the opposite. And maybe your mind starts to fill some names there. Judas is on that list. There's a reason why there's a lot of names that float around in the world that we live in, but you don't run into a lot of Judases. He's not a popular or well-liked 
figure. Guys, when I read this text, I just want you to know, as we start to engage Judas here, I read this and immediately have so many questions. Like, how is it that somebody could be so close to Jesus and yet not only reject him, but betray him? Or, or how is it that Jesus knew, like this was all gonna take place? Like, how did he know that Judas was gonna do this and still invite him into the inner circle? That just seems weird, crazy. And how is it that the disciples, at least they should have figured it out, like that he's talking about Judas, but if they knew, why didn't they stop him? Like, why didn't they step in and do something? Like, I come to this text with so many questions. And so today, guys, I'm gonna to try to answer some of these questions, but I also wanna just give this warning on the front end. Because in this text, there is a warning. Because sadly, and this can often happen as I read the scriptures myself, all my questions can be about them and those people, things outside of me. It's easy to ask those questions. Why did they do what they do? And why did they get it wrong? But this, this passage will ask questions of, of us. And so if you're sitting here this morning like, well, will this passage say anything to me? I'm just letting you know, it will say plenty. And I think it'll hit us between the eyes, surprisingly maybe. So I'm gonna pick up in verse 21. Chapter 13, verse 21 says this. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. So I'll pause here. There's a restlessness that's beginning to build in Jesus. A restlessness because he, he knows what's coming. He can see like the, the cross is in full view at this point. Soon everybody around him will desert him. Soon he'll be dragged before a rigged court. Soon he will be beaten within an inch of his life and then nailed to a cross where he will die. And in all of that, I'm not even mentioned the worst part of all of what's about to unfold. That while he's on the cross, he will experience something he's never experienced before in his life. I believe this is the worst part of it all for him. And what causes him the greatest restlessness is that he will feel distance from his father. what we deserved. And amidst like all the agony and the restlessness that's building within him is the coming voluntary and selfish defection of Judas. But I don't want you to miss this because there is a restlessness here. But guys, none of this is catching him off guard. Jesus knew this day was coming. He had declared this a year earlier. If you go back to John 6, this is what he said to his disciples. Didn't I choose you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. We saw this even last week in chapter 13. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. And just a few verses after that last week, Jake hit this as well said in verse 18, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. And I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Jesus is troubled, but none of this is catching him off guard. And what he's trying to do now is he's trying to pull this betrayal into the light because he's just managing expectations for his disciples. Just letting them know, guys, it's going to get bleak. There's going to be some dark days ahead, but don't 
be discouraged. And while he's trying to be abundantly clear for them, like confusion is taking over the room. Verse 22, the disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus, and Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was that he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus replied, he is the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And I wanna just pause, because I, I wanna keep reading, there's, there's much more here. But I wanna pause for a moment and make sure you, you don't miss this here. I believe something big is happening. Last week, we saw Jesus do something of unthinkable, unimaginable love as he lowers himself and washes his disciples' feet. And in the room is G Judas. He washes his feet. It's just, it's just interesting to pause on that, knowing the betrayal's coming. But I think we see something else here. Now another final act of love to Judas. See, in, in these days, one thing that was, that was common was that if you were hosting a feast, one thing the host could do to show honor or distinguished marking of a, a particular guest or a guest of honor, one thing that you could do is you would take kind of the, the common bowl and you would lift it up before everybody and you would take a piece of bread and you would dip it in and grab out maybe one of the, the tastiest morsels and you would pull it out and then you would give it to that guest of honor. It was a mark of deep honor and friendship. This is just me. I wonder if he was still at this point offering grace to Jesus, trying to end his love. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And so Jesus told him, what you are doing, do quickly. Those are terrifying words. Satan entered him. We saw back in verse two of chapter 13 here that Satan had put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. But now what we see here is, is something different. Whatever rulership Satan had before in Judas's life, this is a whole new level. And what's crazy is Jesus then stares into the eyes of Satan and he doesn't stop him. He could have, he had authority over all things. He doesn't stop him, he sends him. At this critical moment, Jesus staring right into the eyes of Satan, he doesn't stop him, he sends him. And I can't help but think about Jesus's words in John 10 when he says, this is why the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. He doesn't stop him, he sends him. What we see unfolding before our eyes is the good shepherd is voluntarily laying down his life for his sheep. 
It's good for us to pause here and remember that as dark as this scene is, everything is going according to plan. None of those reclining at the table knew why Jesus had said this. Since Judas was keeping the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling them, buy what you need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. But after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. Just walking through that passage and just kind of pausing throughout it, what we get here very simply, and it could be just taken at this, is on the surface, it's just a very simple, sad story. How could Judas do this? And we could just leave it there. But here's the thing, as I believe that scripture is meant to be like a mirror for us, that if we will humble ourselves, we can lift the mirror of scripture up and it will reveal things about us, not just about them and those people, but about us. And, and I wanna take a majority of our time this morning and now move beyond just like the, the simple surface level of what's going on in this text, just a sad scene and begin to ask like, what do we do with this, okay? And I believe there's three things that as we hold up this mirror, we should take note of, okay? First off is this, as we hold up the mirror, because I think number one, reading this text, we should be warned. We should be warned. One of the biggest questions, and I've asked it a couple times already, that arises as we read this text is how could somebody who was so close to Jesus not only reject him, but betray him? I mean, if I went around the room and asked each of you this question, right? Maybe you've had this kind of experiment kind of pulled on you, this game pulled on you, where I said, hey, if you could go back in time and have a meal with any person in all of history, who would it be? And often among Christians, we always say, other than Jesus, you know, because we just assume that if we had that opportunity, if we could go back in time and have a meal with anybody, we want to eat with Jesus. Because we just ex expect that if we only got like an hour of time with him, I mean, just to sit there with Jesus, to see his face and to talk with him and, and to watch what he does, it would change our lives. Just one hour we expect would change our lives. But Judas got that for three years. He got a front row seat to see everything, to see Jesus walk on the water, to, to heal people that were paralyzed, to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet somehow he looked at all of that, having a front row seat for it all, and he goes before the chief priests. I can't even imagine. I wonder if they even like brought this up. Like, hey, why are your feet so clean? Like he walked from that room, went right into the midst of the chief priests with clean feet, a stomach that was full, probably the taste of that morsel still in his mouth and sold him out and sold him out. And we can ask the question, how could, how could Judas do this? And we can make it all about him. But guys, if you know me and, and we've been walking together for a while, this is something I've, I've said numerous times from the stage and I say it all the time off the stage. This is just, just part of what I believe like we need to do as God's people is we need to have a healthy and humble understanding of who we are. And I don't ever look at somebody else's sin and go, I could never do that. I believe the healthiest life posture we can have is as we look at anything in our world to go, yeah, 
It's possible I could do that. I think when we start getting that spot, like, I could never do that. It, it puts us in this like pedestaled spot that I think like pride is now gonna begin to do its work and take us off. The essential ingredients that were in Judas's betrayal are also in me. And if you're honest, they're also in you. Hebrews warns us to watch out brothers and sisters so that there won't be in you and any of you an evil or unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deception. Sin is deceitful and my heart is prone to wander. And what Judas proves for us is that proximity does not equal saving faith. That's something that's really important for us in the Cedar Valley. A lot of good church going folk for us to understand that proximity does not equal saving faith. You can be incredibly spiritual and anti-Jesus at the same time. Everybody around you may be thrown off. They may think that you're something that you want them to believe, but Jesus knows. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus makes that statement that one of you is going to betray me, you notice that they didn't sit there the moment and go, well, obviously, Judas over there, and taken from the money bag all these weeks anyway. Notice that it didn't happen that way. In fact, Matthew and Mark's account of this moment, they actually all sit there and go, is it me? I mean, they, they have no idea who's actually gonna do the level that they're asking like, is it, is it me? Is it possible that, I was, that I'm gonna do this? In fact, Luke goes on and says in his account that they even argued among themselves about who it could be. That's how hard it was to spot that Judas was the one, right? And we can do the same thing. You can attend Candeo every week and be completely lost. You can have some emotional experience where you felt God do something and it felt amazing and not know Jesus. You can read your Bible every day and point everybody you know to Jesus and give generously to the church and never have a saving relationship with Jesus. Judas had proximity to Jesus and he fit in with the crowd and he never knew him. Never surrendered to him, never submitted to him and had no part in him. First thing I think we need to take away from this text if we hold it up like a mirror is to be warned. We too live with deceitful sin all around us and hearts that are prone to wandering and getting hard. My second encouragement is actually gonna make it sound like I'm like trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth here. So forgive me if this seems duplicitous. <laughs> because I would say first off as you read this text, be warned. Second thing though, I would also say though is, but don't be afraid, but don't be afraid. Because you can start to ask the question, if Judas spent three years with Jesus and yet went on to reject him, is it possible that I could I could do the same thing. And while I believe that we need to have this healthy and humble view of ourselves, the last thing I want you to do is to walk out of here more committed to working harder to stay close to Jesus. 
And that at the end of the day, your confidence would be somehow in the hardness of your work, like, like, like how hard you were trying. Don't put your confidence there this morning. Hear these words from Jesus. This is where we should put our confidence. He said in John 10, we covered this last spring, that my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. Our confidence is not to be found in the strength of our faith, but in the strength of his grip on us. His grip on us. One of the most painful realities of life as a Christian, and if you walk with Christ long enough, you'll experience this, but it's the pain of as you're walking with Christ, seeing people that at one point you thought were in Christ with you. Friends, spiritual leaders, family members who taught you how to pray, taught you how to read your Bible, showed you what it looked like to not just proclaim the gospel, but display it with their lives. People like that, that shaped who you are in Christ, who now today no longer follow him. I think of Tony. I can think of a million examples, sadly, but I think of Tony. That was my first experience. A friend who came to know Christ the same time I did. Because if ever there was somebody who had a genuine, like, like powerful conversion moment of darkness to life, it was him. And in those early years, like everything that we did in Christ, we were doing together and side by side. And I couldn't outpace him in anything. His zeal was unmatched. Tony and I haven't talked about Christ, guys, in over 20 years. Because he no longer follows him and wants nothing to do with him. And I can read this account with Judas and I begin to think about Tony's, and I begin to wonder, God, were you not enough for them? Were you not enough to, to hold him? What, what happened there? But I gotta keep coming back to this. I gotta keep coming back to John 10 and remind myself of this, guys, that those in Christ never fall away. And if you begin to wonder, so what's going on here then? Guys, understand this. When I look at my friend, Tony's life or your examples in your head, the reality is this, that, that because we know that no true Christian ever falls away, those who do only prove what has been true about them the whole time, that they just simply never knew him. Maybe they had an experience, it was a moment, that they never knew him. Some will come to this text and they can see words about Jesus saying, you know, I, I chose these, I cho didn't choose you, that, that whole thing, and like I chose him for this purpose. And you begin like asking, gosh, 
Is it, is it possible here that actually what we have going on is a soft-hearted man actually wanting to have a relationship with Jesus, but Jesus actually was the one who hardened his heart and used him like a pawn and manipulated this whole scene so that he could use him. And now this, all this destruction that's playing out, this is, this is Jesus's unfair treatment of a soft-hearted man. That's, that is not what's going on here. God didn't harden Judas's heart. It was already hard. And Jesus didn't use him like a pawn, Satan did. But Satan and sin seizing an opportunity, put something in Judas's heart, found that open door that was already there and began to work that spot until he had complete control. And guys, I don't know at what point in this message to like make this abundantly clear, but I just, I, I gotta, maybe I'll just do it here just so you don't lose this, guys. Satan loves to steal, to kill, and destroy. That is his delight. And as this whole scene plays out and Matthew gives more detail that John doesn't give, it's a very sad reality of what goes on in Judas's life. As eventually he feels remorse for betraying a friend. It's not repentance, but remorse. Tries to give the money back to the chief priest. They won't take it and goes out and commits suicide. And I have to sit there and just hold on to the contrast of responses because I believe in Jesus' heart is nothing but grief. That's not what I wanted for Judas. It's a path he chose. And there is Satan who loves it. He loves that it turned out that way. And we live in a world where you are either in Jesus' kingdom or his. There's no in-between. Satan used Judas like a pawn and he thought he had God against the ropes. He thought this was his moment. This is where he could come in and maybe capture victory from Jesus. And I'm curious when he eventually figured out that he was just playing into God's plan all along and actually was fulfilling scripture here. I'm sure that was a frustrating moment for Satan. Jesus didn't harden Judas's heart or use him like a pawn, Satan did. But Jesus was able to sovereignly use this dark moment as a catalyst for the cross, where he would voluntarily lay down his life for his sheep. And that by faith, we could claim life in his name and he would give us life and give us it fully. And now he holds on to his children with an unbreakable grip. Our confidence isn't in the strength of our faith, it's in the strength of his grip. No one can snatch him from his hands. So we need to be warned, but we don't need to be afraid. And we need to place our confidence in the right place today in God, not the strength of our faith. But then number three, a call to action. Be warned, don't be afraid, and go to war. Go to war. That may sound like really strong language, but give me just a moment. Because we live in a world where Satan desires to have us. And yes, victory has been purchased and peace is ours as we await a coming day. But the world we live in is a place of war. And the sooner that we adopt a wartime mentality and recognize that we have an enemy who is actively at work trying to make Judas's out of all of us, the better we'll be. There's a phrase that kind of floats around 
Christian circles, that's true, but I think it can be misapplied. But it's this phrase, once saved, always saved. What I mean is that is absolutely true. But I think one of the ways that we can misapply it is that when we're looking at somebody that we're like, wow, they had a moment, they, they walked an aisle, they rang a bell, they prayed a prayer, they did something, they completed a class, they stood up on a stage, they did this or that or whatever, and we're using it as a way to go, and now I don't see any evidence of faith in their lives, but once saved, always saved. And I go, it's, it's true. I just think sometimes it can be a little bit of a false seatbelt for us, maybe a way to encourage or be comfortable with some level of apathy. And so I, I found it helpful. I, I steal this from J.D. Greer. He's probably stealing it from somebody else, but I think this has been more helpful for me. Like what it means to embrace a wartime mentality is to take on the mindset, once saved, always following. Not once saved, always saved, but once saved, always following. See, I'm not saved because I prayed a prayer at some point or completed some class or did some thing. I'm saved because there's a faith that defines my life that is actively bearing fruit. That type of faith saves us. What type of life does this mean we should have? And what does this look like as it's played out in our lives? Guys, I'll just give you a few quick things as we close our time. What does it look like to live in a wartime mentality as a Christian? fruit-bearing life, here's a few things. Number one, Hebrews 12 calls us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Therefore, since we have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm not a runner, my wife is, but this is like a runner analogy that I'm gonna grab from her. Because the reality is, if you're running a race and halfway through the race, all you start thinking on, like what you start focusing on is how much your knee hurts and your ankle hurts, eventually you're gonna give up and not finish that race. You gotta find something else to focus on. And I'm encouraging you Action point number one of living with a wartime mentality is that if you be begin to experience temptation, don't focus on the temptation, keep your eye on Jesus. That if you're running up against resistance, right? You can see that all over Hebrews 12, there's gonna be a battle that takes place. You're running into resistance, don't focus on it, focus on Jesus. You find yourself struggling for joy, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Continue to open his word, to seek him through prayer, to have friends around you that keep pointing you that way, to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who experienced all of those things yet overcame and purchased that victory for you. Second thing that should define a person who's living in a wartime mentality is we have to be ruthless with our sin. We have to be. Jesus told a parable once about some different soils. Maybe you remember that. I'll focus in on one of the soils because Jesus, when he was describing that soil, what he said about it is he said that the message of God, that the good news of Jesus went out and, and like a seed, it fell into that soil. And it's pretty good soil because what sprouted up was this healthy plant that just took root and shot up into the sky. 
one problem. So too did the weeds. And those weeds continued to grow. They were unchecked, continued to grow. And while that plant shot up and looked healthy for a number of days, months, years, whatever you want to call it, eventually it choked out the plant and made it unfruitful. My wife loves to garden. And one of the reasons that she loves to garden, she says it's just something about it that's just worshipful. Because every time I'm gardening, it's a reminder of the need that I need to continue to be prudent to garden my own life, to till up the soil of my own life, to pull out the weeds that are growing up in my life and continue to maintain clear space. Because if you work at it, fruit will come. As Christians, we need to be prudent about dealing with the weeds that pop up in life and continue to uproot them at the smallest form and be done with them. To see our sin, to hate it, confess it, and to be done with it. Then the third thing, keeping our eyes on Jesus, dealing radically with our sin. And number three, and there's more things I could say. I'm just trying to highlight a few simple practical steps for you today that we need to keep ourselves surrounded by people who are gonna encourage and challenge us. And I, I wanna just ask this real quick, because you could go, I've got great friends. You, I don't doubt that. But I think a lot of us have people in our lives that often only tell us what we wanna hear. They're encouraging friends, they're not challenging friends. Do you have people in your life that encourage you and challenge you? I read this text earlier, Hebrews 3, it says, watch out brothers and sisters so that there won't be in any of you an evil or unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deception. We need encouragement, we need challenge. And I wanna be careful because I don't wanna put my foot in my mouth because we're living in a, in a unique season because I'm aware that, that COVID infection rates are climbing and hospitalization rates are climbing and that. But I would also encourage this church to not in light of that lower our priority of the need to encourage one another. I think we can be wise and diligent and still persist in meeting together whether we're in the middle of a pandemic or whether you're an Afghan believer that I've been praying for all week. We need each other. Because Satan loves to kind of pull us apart and get us isolated and put us in our own echo chambers to get us in environments where we're isolated and alone and in that vulnerable. I think one of the sad realities as I look at this text, as I look at Judas, is outside of Jesus, no one else in that room knew who he was. No one knew. He was isolated and that made him extremely vulnerable. And we might have to get creative on what that looks like. I don't know what the future holds. Believers all across the world don't know what the future holds, but as Christians, we have to continue to fight hard 
for that eye-to-eye contact, for friends that are going to encourage us in the midst of the realities of life. And we need to pursue those types of relationships as if our lives depended on it. Because if we're honest, they kind of do. It kind of does. And so we need to see Judas, but we don't just need to see only Judas this morning. We need to see ourselves and we need to be warned. We need to be confident, know where to place our confidence. We also have to be willing to go to war and to embrace that mindset. And church, I'd love to pray for us to do that. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that it does. It serves like a mirror to help us to see, to not just talk about those people out there, but to continue to, to look back at ourselves. And God, for you to continue to refine us, to shape us, and to grow us, Lord. I know that sin is deceitful, and I know that Satan is active, and I know that his desire is for me. Yet, Jesus, I also know the strength of your grip and the glory of your name. And God, I'd ask that you continue to do an abundant work in us, an amazing work in us, that we'd be people not only defined by faith today, but a persistent and perseverant faith that carries out all the days of our lives as we keep our eyes fixed on you, as we're rooting out sin, and as we're encouraging one another all the way till we hit the finish line and you, Jesus, take us home. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.